All right. A couple of announcements. We're going to plan a men's camp out overnight on Friday night, April the 9th, into the morning of the 10th out at Orlando Salas' place, which is in Pattison, just outside of uh, Brookshire, out on I-10. And so we're going to have a sign-up sheet so we get an idea of who wants to go and who's planning to go. It's a great opportunity for a father-son uh, outing. And then um, uh, we're also going to send out an email so people can respond via email and let us know uh, who's going to go. And then also I'll be leaving in the morning to go out for my annual conference in Tucson at Tucson Bible Church. And I'll be back Saturday, so I will be here on Sunday. Uh, Scott Griffin is going to cover Thursday night. And something you ought to know, we may not see him for a while. He is going to be a busy boy. His pastor, the pastor of the church, I think the name of it was Grace Bible Church in Baytown, but I'm not positive, so don't hold me to that. But his pastor, who was in his 80s, died on uh, February 14th. And so the he has been he has been Scott has been teaching one Sunday a month for a while, and uh, several years. And so the uh, pulpit committee has interviewed him, and they have uh, approved him, and they are recommending him to the congregation. The congregation will vote this Sunday. So uh, Scott, as a student, uh, I think he's got about two years, or maybe a little more, behind him going through seminary, Chafer Seminary. Uh, he's going to be busy doing coursework and pastoring and teaching all at the same time. So uh, he's he's going to be busy. So you can be praying uh, for him and praying for that situation uh, in in, in uh, Baytown. So uh, he'll be covering thurs- Thursday night. Like I said, I will be back on Sunday. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. And the reason we do this is for various scriptures, but in the Psalms we're told, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That sin separates the believers from God in fellowship. And so to recover, we need to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that we have you to come to, that you are our rock, our fortress. You are the one who watches over us. You surround us uh, with angels who protect us. You guide and direct us. You are our shield and our high tower. Father, we know that whatever may take place in the coming years, we have no idea what it will be. We will face various tests of our faith. Some may be uh, related to persecution. Some may just be related to the uh, various uh, maladies that occur uh, because we live in the devil's world. And Father, we pray that we might fortify ourselves with your word as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that we might be strengthened through the Holy Spirit in our inner man. And Father, we pray that we might not take the availability of your word lightly, but make it a significant priority today because there's nothing more important than preparing for what is coming. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see 
and understand the parallels between the time of the judges and our time and to recognize through all of this your faithfulness to Israel, your faithfulness to many people, that your grace is always present even in times of discipline. And we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, tonight I want to start off as we get, we're in Judges chapter 1, verses 21 to 36. So we're going to start with a bit of review, but before I get there, I want to go back to some passages in Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along and make notes in your Bibles and, like I've suggested before, just sort of daisy-chain the verses so you can go back and, and find them again, or if you've got your iPhone or iPad or some other device to highlight verses, uh, then you can do that as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, we have a couple of verses that are, or one verse that is important to look at as God is, or as Moses actually is rehearsing what has taken place since the Israelites left Mount Horeb, which is another word for Mount Sinai. And he says, uh, referring to the the cities that they captured on the what today would be the East Bank, Jordan, that area. He says, we took all his cities at that time and we utterly destroyed the men, women, and little ones of every city. We left none remaining. Now that phrase is a phrase that we're going to see several more times in Deuteronomy. And we also see it in the first chapter of Judges. It is a technical term in the grammar of Hebrew. It it occurs when you take a a verb, usually an imperfect verb, an imperfect tense verb, and you couple it with the same verb in an infinitive absolute. And you have this kind of grammatical a structure in uh, Genesis 2.17 when God prohibits uh, Adam and Eve from eating of the fruit of the tree because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's an emphatic statement. You will certainly, absolutely, surely die. It intensifies the meaning. Unfortunately, there were translators uh, who have translated this as a like a participle plus a verb. Dying you will die. Uh, living you will live. That That is not the sense of the idiom. That may be a literal grammatical translation, but that's not what it means. It has a sense of emphasis and certainty and, and, and really putting it in bold face. So that's what you have here. You have this verb karam, that we studied before when we've talked about the war against the Canaanites that is often mishandled uh, and mistranslated as holy war. There's that no, no, no concept of that terminology in the Hebrew. It was called the ban, and the word for that is haram. And when you take it, it, it means to set something apart, to isolate it, and it's the same root from which we get the, the in Arabic the word harem, that you're isolating the women off, the, the wives off, and that's the harem. They're they're devoted to isolation. They're not to be uh, uh, interfered with. So here you have this word harem, and it has the sense of total destruction. And when you couple it with its uh, in this kind of grammatical construction of an infinitive absolute with an imperfect verb, that's a very good way to translate it. We totally, utterly, absolutely destroyed something. It was totally uh, eliminated. And so that is what, what is said, and it's a technical term for the destruction of the Canaanites and God's order, how he uh, how he told them. Says we utterly destroyed the men, the women, and the little ones of every city. We left none remaining. We took only the livestock as plunder for ourselves, 
with the spoil of the cities which we took. Now, in some cases, that's what they could do. In other cases, they could not do that. Okay, so um, that's uh, Deuteronomy 2, 34 and 35. But then when you get down to Deuteronomy 3, 3, and the reason I'm doing this is this is the backdrop again and again. And some of you are reading through your Bible on a chronological plan right now. Uh, and so you should be in Deuteronomy. If you started in Genesis in January, you should be in the midpoint of Deuteronomy. So you should have noticed how many times again and again and again God is telling them to be obedient. God is telling them uh, that they are to be totally obedient to him and do everything that he says and and... Uh, then God is going to provide for them and bless them. But if they don't, if they're disobedient, then God will discipline them. So in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 3.3, we read, So the Lord our God has also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan. Now, Bashan is what we call today the Golan Heights. So it's that, that high plateau area to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them, 60 cities, all the regions was Argob, the kingdom of Og, and Bashan. So they had no survivors. They annihilated the population. That was the purpose. Now, people come along and they say, well, that's such a harsh God. But if you remember, God had told this to Abraham back in Genesis 15 that when, when he made the covenant with Abraham that they were going to be, uh, they would leave the land for over 400 years, 450 years, and they would be in another country, uh, and then they would come back. And God said, because the sin of the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites are has not come to fruition. God's grace let them go for four centuries without punishing them, giving them grace to change, to turn back, to turn to Him, and they just got more and more enmeshed in evil. And so that is why God has given Israel this mission is to remove this cancer from the body of the human race. He says in, goes on to say in Deuteronomy 3, 5, all these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns, and we utterly destroyed, that's that term again, total destruction. We utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. And then Deuteronomy 3.22, you must not fear them. So what Moses is doing is saying, see, this is what happened. We had such great victories over those on the east side of the Jordan. God gave us those victories. There were giants, there were walled cities, there were numerous people, but God gave us the victory. So when you go into the land, this is right before Moses is going to go up to Mount Nebal, and he is going to be taken to be with the Lord, and Joshua is going to take over. So this is his, this is his parting words to the people. It says, you must not fear them. That is the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and all the others in the, in the land. For the Lord your God himself fights for you. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see these commands. Therefore, hear, O Israel. And be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you. A land flowing with milk and honey, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. That, that means you follow all of the commands of God, including the commands in terms of the total destruction of the Canaanite population. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. But see, people want to judge God and say, oh, how can it be right and good to annihilate a population? Well, you have to have a, a biblical view of sin. And you have to have a biblical view of God's, of God's creatures rebelling against him and what the consequences of that are and how it will uh, further corrupt and destroy the human race. 
So he said, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to you. To cast out, verse 19 at the bottom of the screen, to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. And in chapter 7, God gives precise instructions. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and you shall show no chesed. Pay attention to that word. You shall show no chesed to them, no mercy to them, no faithful loyalty to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. Verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. See, if you do this, if you don't do what I say, you're going to compromise and they're going to intermarry with the enemy and it's going to destroy you spiritually, it's going to destroy you morally, and then I am going to have to bring my judgment upon you. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars. You shall break down their sacred pillars. You shall cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. They are idolatrous, and in Deuteronomy we learned that all of these idols are basically empowered by demons. So he says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Uh, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. God didn't give this kind of mission to anybody else. He gave it only to Israel because of God's mission for Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 13, and he will love you and bless you and multiply you. That's the grace of God. And he will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain, your new wine. You're going to have an abundance. You're going to have a rich economy. And you are going to be productive in the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people. And there shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, And the Lord will take away from you all sickness, will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you, and you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, for you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. And in verse 19, the great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. He's, he's given them a, a huge pep talk. You have to be obedient. You have to do everything God said. You have to destroy all the people. You will... He knows you will have pity on them. You will not like it. It's not pleasant, but you have to do the right thing. And I will be the one to give you victory. The Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God is among you. Okay, then in verse 22, And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once. This is a wisdom of God. If you wiped them out at once, then then the land's going to be in trouble. So we're going to do it a little at a time. Uh, But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed, and he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. So God's with him. No matter what happens, you can do it, and God will give you the victory. 
And you shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and utterly abhor it. And then we get into a couple of verses in chapter 9 and chapter 20. He says, it is not because of your... uh, and nine, what do I have? Nine five. I don't have that on the screen. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. In other words, it's not because you're any better than they are that you go in to possess that land, but because of their wickedness, the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. But of the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. But you shall, here's our phrase again, utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord. That is the backdrop. These are the orders. Now, between Deuteronomy and Judges, we have the episodes of Joshua, as Joshua leads them into the land, and they conquer the major strongholds. Or we see the miraculous victories that you have at, at Jericho, that they falter, they don't obey the Lord at Ai, but then they're corrected, and then God gives them the victory over, at, over Ai, and then numerous places in the north and in the south. But now we're in a, a later period, and there's a mopping up operation. And so Judges tells that story because they failed to do what God said to do. But God, it's hard. I don't want to kill all these people. Yes, but it's the right thing to do because God knows all things and therefore he's determined it's the right thing to do. So we have this in chapter 1. It's the introduction showing how Israel went from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. And it's an incomplete obedience. They compromise with the Canaanites, which leads to failure. That's the process. And sets up the cycles of discipline. In 37 to 1631, we see the paganization of the leadership, starting with Othniel, who's the best, to Samson, who's the worst. And it gets progressively worse in each generation. And then there's two, like, appendices at the end, where there's a description of how the priesthood has become paganized and the people are paganized in chapters uh, 19 through uh, 21. So we're in this first chapter. Just some quick review. We're told at the beginning, after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. See, they recognize God has to give us direction. Who shall be the first to go up against the Canaanites? And so they, God chooses um, via, via the, probably via the high priest. He chooses uh, Judah. Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up indeed. Go up indeed. I have delivered the land into his hand. And so we saw what the land of, of Judah looked like. A vast, huge area, some of it desert, some of it is quite green and lush. Judah hits an alliance with his brother Simeon because Simeon's territory is actually within the territory of, of Judah. And so they have strike up an alliance and they will help each other defeat the Canaanites in their land. And so Judah goes up, delivers the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand. The Lord delivers the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand. And they kill 10,000 men at Bezek. We're not sure where Bezek was, probably somewhere on the northern border of of Jerusalem because they would be coming down from from the north. And then they're going to attack uh, Jerusalem, and they're going to take uh, Jerusalem and burn it. 
And this, this is a really interesting scenario because when we get a little further down into verse 21, we read, But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So apparently in the first stage of this, after the defeat at Bezek, I'm going to skip ahead here, which is located about where that first circle is. Then they're going to go to, they're going to go further south. And I skipped, I left that verse out. Okay, so they go further south. But they go to Jerusalem and they defeat Jerusalem and then somehow the Benjamites lose control of the situation. The Jebusites either retake the town or some have suggested there were two sections to Jebus. There's the section that is on the ridgeline that later becomes the city of David, so it would have been just a smaller part of this ridgeline, and then another section up in on the high ground, uh, there's um, not certainty over over that, but whatever happens is by the time you get to verse 21, Benjamites lose control of, and um, they're unable to drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. And so then in a foreshadowing, the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So here's the question. Remember what was said in Deuteronomy? That they're not to intermarry, they're not to mingle with, they're to completely, totally destroy them. So if they haven't been able to destroy them, what's the reason? The reason is already hinted at. It is a failure spiritually on their part to trust the Lord to give them the total victory. But it's only beginning to be hinted at. Now, the other thing that you sh- should notice here in this map is that uh, I have mostly the cities located here as they start with Abizek and then go to Jerusalem and then down south to Hebron and to Dever, De- uh, Dever. All of this territory to the south, Hebron's the capital of the territory of Judah, all this area that I'm circling here, all that area is for the tribe of Judah. Now, to the, to, at Jerusalem, this is on the boundary of Judah's territory, and the territory to the north, just a small territory right here, is the territory for Benjamin. And then all this territory to the north, going up like this, we'll see a better map of it later, but I'm just showing you this now. All this territory appears for uh, Ephraim. And as, as th- this is like... Um, uh, what what happens is that you have Judah in the south, and then you have Ephraim in the north, and Benjamin is just sort of being squeezed out between them and is barely mentioned in chapter one. Only down in um, in in oh, I'm in Joshua there. Only in twenty one do you have this one mention of Benjamin. But later on, in Josh, in, um, uh, in well, actually in Joshua, we're told in Joshua fifteen eight, the border went up from the valley of the son of Hinnom, from the valley of Gehenna, which is that valley just to the south of Jerusalem, to the southern slope of the Jebusite city. So if we go back to this map, this picture. This valley off right here at the lower left corner, this, this is a valley you can see how it swings up on the other side. This, this valley up to the southern edge, so the southern edge of the Jebusite city was probably further up the ridge, and that's what that's talking about. And that's the border that is being set up for the border between Judah and Benjamin. So this is Jerusalem is right on the border. Uh, Joshua eighteen sixteen says, then the border came down to the end of the mountain that lies before the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is the valley of the Rephaim on the north, descended to the valley of Hinnom to the side of the Jebusite city on the south, and then descended further. In eighteen twenty eight, again list. 
Jerusalem, but here it's mentioned as the Jeb, again as the Jebusite city. So it's still the Jebusite city in Judges uh, 121, although there's been a, an assault on it by Judah. But by Judges 19, 11 to 12, it's still called the city of the Jebusites. It's called Jebus, and it remains under Jebusite control until David takes it in 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 9. And what we're seeing here is that uh, the writer is painting this picture of Judah's victory and Benjamin's compromise. Judah will be the tribe from which David comes, and Benjamin is the tribe from which Saul comes. So he's, he's very much in favor of Benjamin. He also doesn't seem to like Ephraim very much and doesn't, doesn't mention uh, Ephraim very much. Let me get past this slide. Okay, Judges one twelve. Then we're reminded of Caleb and he, the fulfillment of God's promise to Caleb that he's going to be given uh, Hebron, and so he's going to take uh, Hebron, and then they go south to to Kiriath Sefer, which is called the o- older name for Devir, and he makes this promise, and we're introduced to his daughter Aksa and probably his nephew. Uh, Othniel. Othniel becomes the first judge. So this is, again, positive uh, foreshadowing of Othniel. We saw some pictures here of a woman like uh, Oxa riding a donkey uh, with the sheep. And this is just what the territory there, Devere, looks like, where the springs are located. It's very green there. So you have the springs there. Here's the where they've uh, strengthened the well. So you have, and then down here on the lower right, there's another well. So these would be the upper and lower wells. And so she comes and requests this land, and Caleb gives it to her. And then in verses 16 and 17, we saw that the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, come up to the city of Palms, which is down towards the Dead Sea on the other side of Arad, and there they dwell with the people. And then we have this episode with Judah going with his brother Simeon. They attack the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath. And look at that next word. And they utterly destroyed it. So they're following the pattern of Hamah, uh, of, um, of Haram, rather. And what did they call the city that they rebuilt it with? Hormah. H-R-M, harem, those are the consonants for that word. Horma is a form of it. And so they're remembering that. And then we're told in verses 18 and 19 of Judah's success against the Philistines and the Philistine territory. But there's a hint of foreboding when you get to chapter under uh, verse 19. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now, iron at this point, this is not yet the Iron Age. Iron at this point was extremely rare. It shows that they have a much advanced technology, much advanced weaponry because the um, chariots were the... Uh, sort of the light uh, or heavy cavalry of the ancient world. But we know that military technology is not a problem for God. The walls at Jericho were not a problem with God. The people in Ai were not a problem for God. The people on the other side of the Jordan were not a problem for God. So the fact that they're defeated doesn't fit with the promises unless the people are beginning to fail spiritually. And so the fact that they're defeated here brings a note of pessimism and a recognition that there's something wrong spiritually. The only time they've had defeats in the past like at I was because of a spiritual failure. And um, I'm going to skip past some of that. 
Uh, let's just go on to, uh, here's a map showing the areas that uh, uh, related to a- Ashkelon, Gaza, Ashdod over here, um, all of these territories that are taken by Judah. And this is Ashkelon showing the uh, ancient tell, the size of See, these cities are not r- very large. They're, they're small. They're not inhabited by many people. These are some pictures of some older ch- uh, chariots, uh, uh, Egyptian war chariots, but the Canaanites have iron so that that, that strengthens their wheels so that they're not going to be uh, falling apart in the midst of a battle. Now, in Judges uh, 1.20, let's go to 21, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. This is a strong reminder that uh, Benjamin is in spiritual failure. This, uh, their territory, as I said before, is squeezed between the large territory of Judah to the south and the large territory of Ephraim to the no- north. And so uh, by putting... Uh, Benjamin in the forefront in this first chapter, he's also foreshadowing what will happen negatively to Benjamin near the end. So let's look at the next verse. Verse 22, And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. Now Bethel means the house of of God. Beit is the Hebrew word for house, and El is the name of God, the generic word for God. Beit El is the house of God, but it's not named that until later because of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, primarily Jacob, because Jacob is going to camp out there just at the same place where Abraham and Sarah had camped out in Genesis twelve seven, And when uh, when Jacob camps out there, that's when he has that dream of the angels ascending and descending on a staircase to heaven. And so he changes the name to Bethel, the house of God. Now that's important backdrop for this, this passage. So verse 24, we read, when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will show you mercy. So apparently, you got two options here, really. Either there's there's a gate, and the spies aren't bright enough to see the gate, and if you've ever been over there, the gates are large. I mean, these entryways, because you have a lot of people going into the gates and coming out. But this must have been a hidden or secret gate, and I'll show you some pictures that of this kind of a gate that have been discovered archaeologically. So that's what they want. They want to know where where this guy's come from, where the secret in, entries, and what do they say? We will show you mercy. We will show you chesed. What did Deuteronomy say? Do not make a covenant with them and do not show them chesed. But that's what they're doing. Now there's some similarities here with what happened at Jericho. And the author wants us to think of those similarities. In Jericho, the two spies go in. They spy out Jericho. They are protected by Rahab, and Rahab is going to let them out secretly, and they make a promise to Rahab that they're going to protect her and they're going to protect her family. The difference is Rahab has recognized the authority and power of the of Israel's God, and she is a believer. This guy is not a believer, and when this episode is over, he's going to get out of the area, and he's going to go back up towards Turkey to the area of the Hittite Empire, and he's going to start a new city there and name it after this city and call it Luz. So they're making a a covenant, a promise to a pagan who is not loyal to God in contrast to Rahab at Jericho. 
And in verse 25, so he showed them the entrance to the city. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go. Now, the house of Joseph. Let me remind you of what happens in Genesis 48. Jacob is on his deathbed. And Joseph is told that, and so he wants to have his sons, his two sons, blessed by Jacob. And so he takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, uh, to go take them to Jacob. And Jacob welcomes them. But I want you to notice here that at the beginning of the, the word order, it's Manasseh first and then Ephraim. Manasseh is the older and Ephraim is the younger. And all through Genesis, you have this pattern of the younger serving, I mean, the older serving the younger. Normally, the rule of primogenitor was at play in the ancient world, and so the inheritance always went to the older son. But here the inheritance and the line of the seed always went to the younger. Ishmael was born first to Abraham, but Isaac is second. He's the younger. Uh, You get to uh, Jacob and Esau as twins. Esau is the uh, older, and and Jacob is the younger. Jacob will get the blessing. You get here, and Joseph is the younger. The line of the seed, the line of blessing is going to go down through I mean, the the line of the blessing is going to go through Joseph. Um, He'll get a a special portion. The line of the Messiah goes through Judah. But the line of the but the blessing here uh, of the firstborn is going to be given to Joseph in a double portion with his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim. But he's going to shift it on him. uh, Jacob will shift it on him. So then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, behold, I will, and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting promise. What is he doing? He's reminding Joseph of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to them. And in, and so the, what happens then is J, uh, Joseph brings the t- two sons. He's got uh, Ephraim on his right hand. He's got Manasseh on his left. He's facing Jacob. So Jacob's right hand is over here. His left hand is over here, and his right hand is over here. So he pushes Ephraim towards Jacob's left hand, but he's pushing Manasseh towards his right hand because he wants Manasseh, the older one, to get the blessing. And old, mostly blind Jacob reaches out and switches his hands so that he puts his right hand on Manasseh and his, I mean, on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh so that the uh, double portion, the primary blessing goes to the younger and not to the older. Now, all of this is kind of background because when we get here and we say the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, uh, first you might think that house of Joseph refers to a combination force of Ephraim and Manasseh. But when you read through the passage, he's he only mentions the name Ephraim once, and it is the territory that they're going into at Bethel. That is territory that is allotted to um, that is allotted to uh, Ephraim, and so they're going to take a Bethel. And so the house of Joseph here primarily refers to Ephraim, and there are several places in the Old Testament where house of Joseph is used as a substitute for Ephraim. It doesn't necessarily imply both tribes. So the house of Joseph, mentioned again, sent men to spy out uh, Bethel. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said, show us that that entry. So here's Bethel, uh, just here, just north 
It's probably only about 12, 14 miles north of Jerusalem. And here is a map, a better map, that gives us the tribal allotment. So see down here in this light green, that's all Judah. And then a little darker shade of green, that's Simeon. And right here you have Hormah. Now you go north and you see this very small yellow shaded area, and that's the tribe of Benjamin. And Bethel, notice Bethel is not in Ephraim's territory. It's on the border between uh, Benjamin and, uh, and Ephraim's territory. And so not only does, does Judah go in initially and take Jerusalem for Benjamin, implying the weakness of Benjamin. Now you have uh, Ephraim, you have the house of Joseph going and taking, uh, taking Bethel for uh, the tribe of Benjamin. It's not exactly in Ephraim's uh, territory. So there's the, the, this is interesting because these little things that you don't necessarily pick up on if you don't look at this a lot, is that the writer is indicating through all of this the weakness of Benjamin. And nothing good is said about Benjamin in Judges. And that's a real setup for what's said about Benjamin and Saul coming out of Benjamin as you get a little little further along. So here's a couple of pictures. This shows the area of Bethel. This gives you a good uh, aerial shot. This is looking... Uh, from the looking from the south, and here we have uh, same view, but now here is Gibeon. So we're looking toward the north from the south. Uh, Gibeon, actually, Gibeah is right over here. Saul of Gibeah is over here, but up here to the north, you have two sites. Uh, Beitin is most likely the site of Bethel. Over here, you have uh, uh, Kerbet. Uh, Makater, which is one place some people think that uh, that that uh, I was located, but it was more more than likely at at Tel uh, John Garstang, who did the excavation there in the 20s and 30s, uh, discovered a, a lot of artifacts that that confirmed it. It's just that later on, a woman by the name of Kathleen Kenyon in the 50s came along and said, oh, there's no evidence of, of, of the Jews being here. And she did the same thing at, at, at uh, Jericho. Well, what happened between the early 30s and the early 50s? There was a war for independence, and the Jews won, and the Arabs lost. And after 1948, the Arabs controlled, still control this area. It's called the West Bank. And it's interesting, not a single archaeologist has discovered evidence of the Jewish conquest in the West Bank since 1948. There were a number of archaeologists who discovered evidence of the Jewish conquest before 1948. But once you get into this political scenario with the UN and everything, you don't discover the Jewish presence there anymore, just a form of anti-Semitism. Here is a sec one of these uh, secret gates. It's called the Postern Gate. Uh, this is located in, uh, in an area up near uh, a Hittite city up in Turkey. Uh, this one is uh, another one that is uh, near Bethel. And there we have that. This is also a Postern Gate, and we have one here at Megiddo. So this, these would be a way to get in and out of the city if it's under siege. Okay, I'm going to skip past a couple of things. So we look at Judges 127. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages or Tanakh, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo, and its villages. Why? For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. But what's happening? They were pretty determined at Jericho. They were determined at Ai. 
what's happening? What's happening is that there's a compromise on the part of the Israelites. Now, here are some pictures to give you an idea of some of these things. Beit Shan today is one of the most remarkable archaeological sites to go to. Uh, but you have two portions, the tell, which is the mound that's built up on the ancient city, is what you see in the center of this, of this picture. And then down below is where you have the ruins of the much later first century city of, of this, also called Scythopolis, that was part of the uh, Decapolis, the ten cities mentioned in the Gospels. But this is the city at the time of the judges and at the time of, of Samuel. This is where after Saul was killed on Mount Gilboa, this is where they brought his body up here. Here's another uh, picture of it, the excavations on top of the tell. And you have uh, Egyptian governor's residence here and a Roman temple, some late Bronze Age temples, various things that they have discovered there. So that is Beit Shan, and then and that would be on towards the center of uh, Israel, towards the, almost towards the uh, Jordan River, and then on the far west you have on the Mediterranean Sea coast you have Dor, and these are just some nice aerial shots of the area where they've discovered the remains of the city of Dor, and it gives you a tremendous perspective. I think. Off here in the far north, you can see uh, some uh, much larger buildings and a lot of population. That is Haifa. So this is Tel Dor and just some of, a picture of some of the uh, homes and dwellings or what's left of them, the walls that, that were there. There is a... I thought I had a map of this. Okay, let me back up a second. I do have a map. I was looking for it. Um, that also came to pass that when Israel was, was strong, that they did put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. So now they're going to make slaves of them and they have to pay a high tribute tax to the Israelis. That's not what they were told to do. Verse 29, Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanite dwells in Gezer among them. So you constantly hear the, these words that are in the report about their compromise. This is some aerial picture of the Tel in the middle here. This is the city, ancient city of Gezer, and some uh, standing stones, some pillars that are, were discovered there and have been set up again. Obviously, they had knocked down. So what we have here on this map is here's Gezer here in the south. And I want to stay on this map. Uh, what we have here is in the previous verse, it mentioned Beit Shan, it mentioned Iblim, it mentioned uh, Tanakh, it mentioned Megiddo, and it mentioned on the coast Dor, which is located around here. So what you have is basically this, this small area here, which is the area that um, was, was, was taken there in, in Judges, uh, Judges 1 with... Um, In verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shan or, and its villages but uh, or Tanakh. So they didn't take these cities. Now, this is, Man this is Manasseh, this brown shaded area. So that's their northern border. So they didn't get that, that secured. And then over here on the, across the Jordan, we see, remember Manasseh, Half the tribe wanted to stay on the uh, east bank and the other half uh, entered into the land. That's why it refers at times to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Okay, then we get to verse 30. Nor did Zebulon drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal 
So the Canaanites dwelt among them, again, that's the third time, and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alav, or Aksiv, Helba, Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. So that's been a steady uh, drumbeat. Now here is a picture of Akko. Akko has a harbor, and it's on the coast uh, at the northern border between Israel and and uh, Lebanon. Here's an aerial shot. So here we have the territory of Zebulon here but north of Manasseh, and they're going to take two cities there. And it's a little easier to see on this map because this map has Kitron and Nahalal uh, identified there. So verse 33, nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beit Anath, but they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anath were put under tribute to them. And then the sad verse, verse 34, and the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. So here we have the map showing Beth Anon and Beit Shemesh here to the north. And what is actually going on, Dan is given this territory here. Here is Jerusalem. So this is the territory to the west of Jerusalem where you begin to go down from the mountainous hill country that runs down the middle, the spine of the country, and you're going down into the coastland area where it's flat and level. And so the Canaanites drive them out, and it, it, this is, comes back at the end of the book of the Judges as they end up making their migration all the way to the north and taking territory up here uh, to the northern edge of, of, uh, of Israel at a place called that is called Dan in the rest of the scripture. And verse 35 says, And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. And then it closes, Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upwards, and that's down in the very south. The Amorites were to the south, uh, south of the of the Negev. Now, this just sounds like a boring list of of uh, territories and problems, but it gives us a picture of what has happened progressively as these tribes have compromised with the Canaanites. Now they're living among them. They're going to be intermarrying with them. They have not torn down all of their temples. They have not torn down all of the uh, high places. Uh, they've not destroyed them. They have left most of the Canaanites alive. And this is going to be a major problem because they have allowed this foreign group to be part of their culture now that holds to uh, a worldview that is totally antithetical to the worldview that is embodied in the law of Moses and the fact that God has called them for a special purpose. And so the, they are going to be uh, challenged in chapter 2, verse 1, when the angel of the Lord comes uh, to address them and rebuke them for their failure and to read them the riot act and what the consequences will be. And so we'll come back to that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things. They foreshadow what happens in so many cultures as there's a compromise by Christians, a compromise by believers with the, uh, with the pagan worldview of the day. And we have seen this pattern again and again through church history. And we recognize that this is the way in which uh, cultures and empires and nations collapse. Father, we live in such a time, and we pray that you would strengthen us, that as we watch almost powerless 
to do anything about changing the direction of the politicians and the leaders in business who are giving themselves over to uh, all of the uh, extremely leftist uh, and Marxist ideas. Father, we pray that you would uh, protect us, give us wisdom as we chart the course of our lives, and may we not forget that we have a purpose as Israel did and that we are to be a witness for you and for the gospel to those around us and not compromise our spiritual uh, foundations. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.